1: on Cougars. This is your daily podcast focused on the BYU Cougars. Thanks for joining us on a Monday edition of the show. A supersized edition of the podcast. Just to give you guys a heads up right off the top here. A special edition of the podcast as we begin our look back at the 1984 BYU National Championship season with the starting quarterback from that team Robbie Bosco. Had a long conversation with him. You'll hear that on today's podcast. We also have a special segment at the end of the podcast from the Locked On Podcast Network's NFL channel as the NFL mock draft uh, across that channel begins. We'll have a special edition of that later on in today's show. And of course, we'll kick things off today talking some BYU basketball as they extend their series against the University of Utah through 2023. So, a lot to get to on a supersized edition of Locked On Cougars, but we are proud to be part of that Locked On Podcast Network where the motto is your team every day. So, let's talk BYU sports. And with that rundown out of the way, let's get it started here. This is is locked on Cougars for April 13th, 2020. What's up, everybody? I'm Jay Catch, your host here on Locked On Cougars, your resident BYU insider. I work for The Zone Sports Network in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks again for taking the time to download this podcast, all focused on the BYU Cougars with us here. Uh, if you're... New to the show, welcome on in. We aim to be your one-stop shop for all the BYU sports news and insider information that you cannot find anywhere else. And thanks again for taking the time to follow us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple iTunes, or listening on wherever you listen to your podcasts on. Make sure to follow the show on whichever podcast provider you're listening to us on. That way you never miss an episode of this daily pod podcast focused on BYU. We'll start off today talking some BYU basketball, initial report in the Salt Lake Tribune, but since confirmed by multiple other outlets is that BYU men's basketball has agreed to a four-year extension of their series against the University of Utah through 2023. Uh, The first game of the extension will take place on December 12th at the Marriott Center in Provo this coming December. I think this is a, a positive sign for the relationship between the two schools. Obviously, Larry Kriskoviak famously took that one-year, uh, what, hiatus, I guess we'll call it, in the series after saying he'd gotten, quote, too toxic. Okay, Larry. But the nice part is this series is going to extend on into the middle part of the of this decade, and I think it's a It's a positive for both sides because this game this series has meant a lot to this state and the games have been fairly competitive in recent years obviously the University of Utah winning the latest edition just this past year up there at the Huntsman Center so of course the first game uh, will be played in Provo this year go back to Salt Lake in 2021 back to Provo in 2022 and then in Salt Lake in 2023 and I would expect you'll just see another extension after extension on this series for the foreseeable future I think it's a positive for both sides with these two teams uh, having coaches who want to prove themselves. Mark Pope, kind of still in the infancy of his BYU coaching career. He officially was a has been a coach for one year and what three days? I think April 10th was officially introduced as BYU's head coach in 2019. So He's been 368 days on the job, whereas a guy like Larry Kraskowiak has spent the better part of a decade up on the hill at the University of Utah trying to get things righted up there. I think this is a positive series both sides. It's a quality game for both sides when it comes to the non-conference resume as both programs are considered to be decent NCAA uh, caliber programs. Utah's been down in recent years, but BYU very much. It's been a quality win for the Utes in their own right. And This past year, after Utah had beaten Kentucky and BYU, a lot of people thought, hey, they have a chance to make an NCAA tournament run. Well, when you don't win a game in road action, when you don't win a road game in conference action, kind of nixes in the opportunity of that but regardless I think this is a positive positive series for both sides and congratulations to both athletic departments on getting this agreement in place so we'll have more coverage for you on this and other BYU basketball news notes each and every day as they come along here all right coming up here in just a second we're going to catch up with Robbie Bosco former BYU quarterback now an administrator down there in the athletic department at BYU but he was the starting quarterback a team captain on the 1984 national championship team. I just to, to talk with him about a wide range of subjects involving that 1984 team as part of a week-long series here on the greatest season in BYU history, obviously, the 1984 national championship can't beat that so we'll get to that conversation with Robbie Bosco here in just a second before we do that though a reminder for you guys that listening to this podcast is really simple to do all you have to do is tell your smart devices play the latest episode of the Locked On Cougars podcast and we'll be right there with you guys a lot of you adjusting to work from home life adjusting just kind of the new normal with the COVID-19 pandemic well we can break up the monotony of your day a little bit here with a daily podcast and some BYU sports talk so just tell your smart devices your smartphone or your smart speaker play the latest episode of the locked on cougars podcast and we will endeavor to make you the smartest byu fan in the room
2: the ncaa tournament is almost here and listening to locked on college basketball will give you the edge you need to dominate your bracket so don't wait find locked on college basketball on youtube or wherever you get your podcasts
1: Alright guys, had a chance to catch up with Robbie Bosco, of course a team captain and the starting quarterback on the 1984 National Championship team to talk about his memories of that 1984 team the coaching he received from guys like Lavelle Edwards and Norm Chow, his teammates, what that offense was like uh, working with guys like Glenn Kozlowski David Mills, etc. The 84 team will forever live on in BYU football history obviously, but wanted to get an insider look at guys who lived through it, were on the team during that era and well, who better to start this off with than the starting quarterback? So here's my conversation with Robbie Bosco, part one, right here on Locked on Cougars. Please welcome in Robbie Bosco now, of course, the starting quarterback for the 1984 BYU National Championship team. Robbie, how are you today?
3: I'm doing good, Jake. How you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. I appreciate taking some time to join us here on Locked on Cougars to talk about the 84 National Championship. Let's start here. At the outset of 1984, you're the starting quarterback. Did you believe that that team had what it took to win a national title?
3: Actually, I never even thought about that. I mean, I had my concerns were winning the WAC championship. I think going up to going up to this season, I think we had won like I don't even know what it is, six or seven straight WAC championships, and here I was. Rep- coming, playing, or replacing all these great quarterbacks. And and then all of a sudden I start thinking about, man, I don't want to be the first one not to win the WAC championship. You'll be labeled for that forever. So <laughs> that was my concern. I wasn't even thinking about, you know, bigger things like the national championship.
1: Yeah, the start of that season, obviously, you guys got off to a hot start and obviously you guys were undefeated the rest of the way. Uh, at what point during the season did you feel like, okay, this team's pretty good? Maybe we're better than WAC championship good.
3: Um, you know, definitely not after the pit game. At least from uh, an offensive standpoint, or maybe my performance standpoint. I thought I played okay, but I didn't play very. I didn't play great. Definitely not. Definitely had a lot of room to improve. We um, came the next week and went home and played against Baylor. And we kind of lit it up and played really well. And and I knew our defense was good. They played really good against Pitt, kind of saved us a little bit. And and so our defense kind of was carrying us through those times. And that Pitt, I mean, the uh, Baylor game, we just kind of lit fire on offense and everything was ticking. So right there I thought we were going to be pretty good. But it probably wasn't until, at least for me, it probably wasn't until we were ranked up there pretty high, maybe inside the top ten, that, you know, not that if we win the rest of our games, we're going to be national champs, but we have a chance to go undefeated and to do something that no other BYU team has done. And then as the rankings started climbing higher and higher, you know, especially when we were – we had two games left before the bowl game and we were ranked third. And I thought, you know, if things happened we could pop up to number one, but, um, for me, I didn't, I didn't go too crazy with it. Um, it's kind of like a game at a time for me.
1: I wanted to ask you, so early on in that season, you guys went to Hawaii and, uh, Kyle Morrell has that famous play where he dives over the line and drags down Rafael cherry, uh, by his Jersey. What was your vantage point on that? Did you see that play happen or were you too busy, do, uh, planning for your guys' next series?
3: I was I was standing on the bench and because it was huge. there's nothing for me to study anymore. I mean this was the stop of the game. Somehow we had to hold them and you know and our defense is, was is a really stout defense so I, I thought there's a good chance we could, but I mean they're like they're like a foot away from scoring a touchdown here so they didn't have to go very far. and then all of a sudden I see Kyle Borrrell flying over. And, you know, instead of the quarterback just kind of pausing a little bit, he snapped it. And he just made one of the greatest plays I've ever seen in college football. And uh, that, that right there kind of solidified that win. And uh, that was a great moment in BYU history.
1: Yeah, I, I, so I grew up watching and this, those highlight videos. Every time a highlight video of BYU football is there, it's Kyle Morrell. It's, it's without, without fail, that play will be in there. So was gonna...
3: You know what? He, he was in a lot of highlight films. That guy was a, he was a tough competitor, big hitter on the – he made a lot of highlight reels, but well, that definitely is number one.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, your relationship with your teammates. Obviously, 1983, Steve Young goes out. You had had a great season. You mentioned you'd won those multiple WAC championships in a row. What was kind of the camaraderie on the team like during the 1984 season?
3: Well, it was, uh, you know, at the very beginning, like the spring ball, um, everybody was kind of unsure. I mean, the, the, the things that I knew for sure – I knew we had a great offensive line because they had all played. Maybe except for Dave Wright, um, who was a junior. Also, the rest of the guys were seniors, and they played the year before, and they were very good. So I thought this is comforting knowing that we're going to have them. And then um, you know, then I then I knew you know what cause leading the receiving core, and you know I knew we had some good receivers, and Laquay had played a little bit. And, I knew Lockeay and Kelly Smith were good, so I felt comfortable about them. And defensively, we were we had some studs on that team, and guys that played in the NFL for a lot of years. And and so with that, but no one really knew like how I was going to perform. or really didn't know that we were. As, as spring ball went on, we got closer and closer. And as if you ever can remember a a little story that Labelle told. He said one time in spring ball, it was cold outside. The snow was falling like crazy. And and we were all out there practicing, having a good time and and trying to get better. And nobody was complaining. And it just kind of magnified what he told that story and magnified what kind of teammates we had. And everybody was in it to win. Nobody was there to, to like, let's just go in. It's too cold out here. And so... From there, we just got better and better. And then there was a time during the uh, during the season, early in the season, where our captains got up and, and we came together as players and said a prayer. And I've never seen that before in my coaching, playing, all that kind of thing. Uh, we would have prayers before and after football games, but not, not the, the Friday before Saturday games. And I really believe that brought a closeness to our team that I've never seen before. And it just, the brotherhood of that team was was big. And we all were really good friends. Okay,
1: I wanted to ask you about Lavelle Edwards for a minute here. Of course, anybody who saw him on the sidelines saw that stoic figure. Uh, (laughs) How was he during the 84 season, just off the field, even on the field? How was he as a coach during that season?
3: He was exactly what you picture him to be. I mean, he—he was—he was was in it also, and and he knew exactly what was going on. And even with that stoic face, that people, that iconic stoic face. I mean, he was two to three plays ahead of what we were doing at the time. Are we going to go for? Are we going to punt? Are we going to kick? Are we going to? What are we going to do? Is third down is coming up? Are we going to have two plays for fourth down? Are we going to go for it? And he, was, he made all those kind of decisions that were very crucial um, during a football game that you don't really think about. And then he was just a – he kept he kept us all together. And then when he needed to get on people, he got on people. Because that year, he had to get on people. It was a feisty group of players. Our guys liked to fight. They fought in practice. And sometimes he he let it go. Sometimes he had to control it like, hey. And sometimes he got so bad that he just kicked guys out of practice too. But at the end of the day, he'd bring him in their office or bring him in his office and he would talk to you. And you walked out of that office smiling. You walked out of there happy. You walked out of there knowing that that guy cares more for you as an individual person than he does about this whole football team. And by caring about everybody individually like that, you can just imagine how that team felt together. And so I I wouldn't have wanted to play for anyone else but that guy. And uh, I have the fortunate opportunity to play for him and to coach with him and to do a lot of things together, to golf with him. And uh, it was one of the great treasures of my life.
1: Okay, I wanted to ask you, just with Lavelle, winning that national title of course he he's since passed but with that national title do you think that almost validated his career in a way or do you think it would have been he would have been thought the same even without a national
3: championship I think he would have been thought the same I mean look at it, it validated in like he's done it all yeah <laughs> national championship coach of the year national coach of the year multiple WAC coaches of the years all Americans. Heisman. I mean, he's, he's done it all. So that's where you validate it. But without any of those things, he was so respected with his peers around the country. I've never seen anything like it. I went to a Paul Bear Bryant award dinner with him because he was receiving that award. And when we would walk into a building, I it was as if the Beatles were there. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> the people just flocked around laB Edwards and there were both. there were people all over great coaches great people and but they flocked around that guy to the point where I'm like hey who am I I was the quarterback does anybody <laughs> remember me they loved that guy and it was well deserved him and his wife patty were they just complimented each other and uh, it was awesome to play for that guy
1: you mentioned that he was sometimes two and three uh, plays ahead, kind of planning out scenarios. A lot of coaches in the modern age go by analytics, the statistics, the percentages, that type of stuff. Was Lavelle that type of a coach, or was he a uh, by-the-gut type of a guy when it came to those decisions?
3: Well, we didn't have any of that stuff back then, so <laughs> he, was, he was definitely a field guy. I mean, he, he had a great feeling for the game, and there were times where we went for it on the 50-yard line. Maybe even on the other side, maybe on our own side of the field, we went for it. But there were a lot of times, but there were times where we wanted to go for it so bad, but we had to punt. And he just he went by his gut. And, you know, I I would say he was correct most all the time. He hardly ever made the kind of uh, bad decisions or decisions that were going to cost our team something. And, uh, but they were, they were definitely thought of, thought of throughout the game.
1: His coaching staff has, has spawned, oh, his coaching tree, I guess, has spawned all kinds of coaches, most notably recently, I guess, Andy Reid winning the Super Bowl. What did he see in guys that maybe, in terms of his coaches that he coached with, and also players, yourself included, that went on to coaching? What did he see in people that made him think, okay, that person would be a good coach?
3: Yeah, well, he, he's a people person, and he has got great feel and understanding of people's minds and, and how they're going to be, I mean, it's not just about coaching. Mm -hmm. How are they going to be recruiting? How are they going to be talking to student athletes, high school kids? Um, How are they going to be able to work with, 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 people on campus, you know, all those kind of things. And he had a great mind for that. And he hired people with that thought process and he, he very rarely made any mistakes with that too. I mean, he hired some of the best coaches that have ever coached on this planet. I mean, he he had a great coaching staff all the time. And, uh, you know, and he would be the first to recognize that, that it was a lot of the coaching staff that made him what he is today and made the players what they are today.
1: He, when he came on as head coach at BYU, essentially, for lack of a better term, zigged rather than zagged. And he he decided, you know what? We're going to try this air it out offense. We're going to throw the ball all over the field. How appealing was that to you as a young man, a high school athlete, when they were recruiting you about BYU?
3: Well, I was... One of my strengths in high school was throwing the football. And so I wanted to definitely go somewhere through the football. So that was appealing I mean it was beyond appealing it was what I wanted to do and I wanted to go to BYU more than anything I mean when I was a junior in high school Jim McMahon was the quarterback as a junior (laughs) and I'm like are you serious look what these guys are doing I've got to go there and then he then but they were recruiting another guy Sean Salisbury from Southern California Mm -hmm. and I just felt like if Sean goes to BYU, I'm going to go somewhere else. I thought I felt that he would he would get a better shot of playing than I would, and so I kind of waited for him to make that decision. And so, when he decided to go to USC, I, I my heart was just pounding. I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm going to BYU, and I only I only went on three trips my senior year. I went to San Diego State because Doug Scoville just became the coach Mm -hmm. who was the offensive coordinator at BYU. I went to Cal Berkeley because they did a heck of a job recruiting me. They were close to home, and they threw the ball quite a bit in the Pac-10 and then BYU. And that's all I wanted to even go to. I turned down some other schools because those are the throwing schools at the time that were interested in me. And I'm so thankful and grateful that I had the opportunity to come to BYU and play.
1: There you go. Part one with BYU 1984 national champion Robbie Bosco. Part two will be coming up here in just a second. Uh, A reminder for you before we do that though is to check out Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. One of the best and brightest podcast, brand new podcast on various social media networks and the podcast providers out there. Chad Ford spent years as ESPN's lead NFL and NFL NBA draft analyst and he is back talking everything NBA with the biggest and brightest minds when it comes to NBA basketball so check it out brand new podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network check out Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on whichever podcast provider you're listening to us on it is also available
2: the NCAA tournament is almost here and listening to Locked On College basketball will give you the edge you need to dominate your bracket so don't wait Find Locked On College Basketball on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
1: All right, guys, part two of my conversation with Robbie Bosco right now, right here on the Locked On Cougars podcast, talking a lot more about the 1984 National Championship team and his memories of what made that season so special as BYU was named national champions for the first and only time so far in program history. Let's get back to some of these games here. Late in the season, you guys actually had your in-state opponents back-to-back. You finished the season at Utah and then uh, home to Utah State. How unique was that during that time period to have both your in-state rivals back-to-back
3: to close out the regular season? Yeah, it was kind of odd. I don't ever remember that happening. I don't even remember it. nowadays it's it, something like that happening. You always seem to play Utah State early and then Utah last. Mm-hmm. And And so, you know, with two games to go, we're undefeated. It's like, oh, great. Now we we have to play the two in-state rivals and those kind of games can go either way. And honestly, against Utah, I started off really well. I mean, we were just, we were on fire and then all of a sudden I went into the interception slump and the game kind of tightened a little bit. But once again, our defense was so good that You know they just they couldn't score against our defense, and so and then we I think we ended up beating Utah State pretty pretty good. Um, They had a pretty good team though, but we beat them pretty good. And um, but it was it was kind of unique, but it was a lot of fun playing them at the end like that.
1: So at that point, you guys have won the WAC championship. You said that was kind of your goal. You didn't want to be the guy that kind of broke that streak of, <laughs> of not winning the WAC championship. But also you're undefeated at that point. Obviously that during those during that era, the WAC champion went to the holiday bowl. Did the team did you guys have any aspirations of going to maybe a bigger name bowl game, or did you care?
3: Well, interesting. During that time, we wanted to play the best we could play because we were so I'll say we were very cocky we knew (laughs) we were really good I mean we were leading the nation in offense passing total offense we were like eighth or tenth in total defense so we knew we were good and so we were wanting to play anybody you know that that they put us up against and there were there was rumor that they were trying to change the bowls a little bit, invite like the holiday bowl, invite someone else that was, that was up there. And I think they declined to play us. If I can recall that right. And I can't remember if it was Oklahoma or Washington that declined to play us. And um, they wanted to play, I guess, whatever bowl they were playing in. And so, you know, from that on, it's kind of, and LaBelle always said this to us every time we had a meeting, he was Don't worry about things we can't control. You just go out and do what you can do, and you play to the best of your ability. And so that kind of stuck with us, and so it really didn't matter. It it didn't matter what we were going to say or not say. There were people out there that thought there's no chance, there's no way they deserve to be number one. Um. Look who they're going to be playing. And look, they're just going to the Holiday Bowl. And it oh, didn't did matter the tech at all. right? Yeah. <laughs> so we just said, we'll, whoever we play, we're going to go out there and and, and play the best, and we'll, and we'll see what happens. If we win this game, yeah, we feel like we should be number one. But if we're not, it's out of our hands.
1: Let's talk about the Holiday Bowl here. Michigan obviously comes into this. They're a big name. They're one of the blue bloods in college football. But at that point in the season, they were beat up. Uh, they didn't have a great record. But were you as excited to face off against a team with their name recognition of the Wolverines?
3: It's kind of interesting because early on, they were pretty good. Yeah. And I think early on, they beat Miami, who had a good football team. And then they started getting some injuries. And like us, you get some key injuries. You know, it kind of hurts your football team. But I think a lot of those guys came back. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of guys came back. So they, we felt they had a pretty good team. We didn't think it was going to be a, a piece of cake to play against them. And so, no, we did not feel like, oh, we have to play Michigan. We played Michigan like they were Michigan. And we prepared and we played the best that we can. And honestly, the game should have been a blowout. We should have, have beaten them by four touchdowns. And then we were we were going down, I think, to go up by two scores. And I get down. I We do, like, a little naked. The ball slips out of my hand. They get it. They march 99 yards and score, and I think they tie it up or something like that. And so, anyways, we had a lot of turnovers, but we ended up winning the game. So, it, it was good for us. I was
1: going to mention that if you look at the box score of this game alone, just in terms of net yardage, (laughs) BYU 484 yards to 203 for for Michigan. But the biggest difference is the turnover margin. And that seems to be the name of the game in any era of football. You win or lose (laughs) the game mostly when it comes to that turnover margin.
3: No question. I mean, but you look at that, there's no reason we should have won that game. (laughs) But look, they had – what, how many yards did they say they had? 203? 203, yeah. 203, and on one drive, I think they had 95 or whatever. I think you might be drive. right, yeah. So they had our. – I'll repeat it again. Our defense was so good, and Leon White played in the league for mm-hmm. eight or nine years. Kurt Goldea played in the league for like 11, 12 years. Kyle Morrell played in the league. Um we that team was just loaded with talent, and defensively, <clears throat> those were some very good football players. But we just kind of hung in there and stuck together and, and played as a team. And and sometimes those things happen, and that was a great win for us.
1: How significant was your injury during that game? You can tell us now; it's it's been thirty six years. How, <laughs> how significant was it?
3: Thirty six years was probably worse now than it was like then. <laughs> it was. It was. You know. When it happened, I mean this game was so big for for all of us. Players, coaches, BYU, the history of college football, you, you just name it. It was just a huge thing for our fans. And when I got hit and rolled over, I'm just like I know it hurt, but I'm like, geez, I've been hit before and I tried to get up and put weight on it and I at that moment I could not put weight on it. And so they brought me into the locker room. And so what had happened, the the worst pain was I had a high ankle sprain. Okay. So that was causing more of the pain. And then I had some, some torn ligaments in my knee. But that didn't seem at the time playing on adrenaline to bother me as much as my ankle did. And so when I was in the locker room, I didn't know how serious the injury was, and they didn't seem like it was crazy bad. So I asked them, I go, if I go back out there and play, will I get hurt worse? You know, thinking probably a little bit about my future, but not wanting to miss another down of this game. And they said, no, you'll be fine. You'll be able to recover from this 100%. So I go, let's just tape it up, tape it as tight as you can, and then I'm going to go back out there. And if you've never been in, uh, it's not Jack Murphy Stadium anymore, but it will always be Jack Murphy to me. Yeah. As I was walking down the tunnel with Jack Murphy to go back out there, there's my dad. My dad met me about halfway up the tunnel. He was coming from the stands to see how I was. And it's just, my dad has always inspired me. So he just, it just inspired me. Go out there and do the very best you can. That's what he's always, that's what he's always told me. He's never cared about winning and losing. He was just go out and do the very best you can. So when I went out there, when I stepped onto the grass, not the grass from the tunnel, it felt as if all the BYU fans were looking at that tunnel, waiting for me to come out because I heard this huge roar and the adrenaline starts going and going. So I go over to the sidelines and I start warming up. And reality is, truck now the <laughs> fans cheer for one thing, but now reality he dropped back mm-hmm. I didn't think I could do it <clears throat> and so I went to the sideline and I went to coach Holmgren I just stood by him to get the next play he goes what are you doing I go I'm going back in he goes are you sure yeah what's the play he gave me the play and, and we decided to go to shotgun we'd never have practiced the shotgun. Ever, <laughs> we never wore. We never even. I've never taken a snap from the shotgun from the center, ever in my life. So the the cadence was a little bit different because you're not right there with the team. Yeah. And and so the very first snap, I'm I I have to call an audible because I I this is going to happen. They're going to start bringing pressure. So I had to, I called an audible to release our halfback out on a free release. And as I was looking to the snap, the snap came. Hissed me right in the stomach. If it would have been to the side, it would have went right by me. So i hurried up and grabbed the ball in my hand and just threw it out there because it came with a blitz. And so I had to go to the center and go, hey, just listen to me. I'll try to be loud. Just listen to my cadence and everything, and we'll be all right from the shotgun. And so – I could run. I could run forward, okay. It was just the lateral steps, like on a drop back or stuff like that. I could do it sometimes, but running straight forward didn't seem to bother me as the lateral steps.
1: So Trevor Maddich is a pretty good guy with getting that that snap, then apparently hitting you right in the stomach. Then he's a marksman.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean Trevor's a first round draft pick, <laughs> and uh, Trevor was a very good offensive lineman. And, he, he was super smart, and, uh, yeah, he, he, was, he was good to have in front of me.
1: I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned the fact going forward, it didn't bother you as much. Obviously, that famous touchdown pass to Glenn Kozlowski, if I'm not mistaken, you, you ducked what appeared to be a guy bearing down on you on a sack. You go forward, and then you find Glenn in the back of the end zone. That play in particular, is that kind of what you're, you're, you just talked about? Like the fact you, you could move forward, but going that side-to-side that to, side to dodge guys might have been a little more
3: iffy. Yeah, so just to get the play straight, when we were down by seven with under two or three minutes to go, to pass the cause, I had to. I got flushed out to my right. Okay. And when I when I got flushed out, I kind I wanted to throw this ball up high because it causes in the back of the end zone, and there were some other guys around there. So I wanted to throw it up high, but I wanted to get some zip on it though. So it was either going to be incomplete or he's going to get it. So when I threw it. My hand kind of made the ball flutter. So that ball was like fluttering up in the air. And Coz went up. I think he even pushed off the guy to even elevate himself even higher. But he went up and caught that. And so that, that, that score tied it up. And we were not going for any t- tie for this game. <laughs> so then the next time we got the ball, we marched down. So the one I stepped up, I got pressure. It's, it's almost as if both guards got beat. So the pressure came up the middle, but I, but they were wide enough where I stepped up in the middle. And as I was, I was running forward, I had to think in my head, I have two linemen in front of me. Do I say go, try to run, get what I can get? But just as I was going to make that decision, I saw Kelly Smith in the corner oh, of my God. eye running up the field. And as a quarterback, you just make that decision. So then I just whip it out to him and he made a great catch and that was the game winner.
1: When you guys were declared national champions, obviously you guys win that game against Michigan in comeback fashion. But when you guys were declared national champions, what was the emotion like for the team?
3: Well, once again, Jake, this was also very weird because December sixteenth was the Holiday Bowl. Yeah, you played right so early. The middle. Yeah. So we played the game. You're not going to find out anything until January second, and so everybody just went home. We went home for Christmas vacation like we did for all the other holiday bowls and like what we do all the time. We went home with our family with Christmas. So we sat around for two weeks. And so when the news came out, um, I have no idea what the feeling was with everybody else. Cause I was just with my family. <laughs> okay. I remember my dad woke me up. Hey, you guys were voted number one. And so I was super pumped and, People started, all the reporters that Salt Lake started calling and interviewing me and, you know, the, the papers and around the country and stuff like that. So, I mean, look okay, if they felt any way I did, which I know they did, it was amazing. It was it, it, it was so exciting and so fun to be a part of that team and, and to be in these games and to, there, there were, Jake, there were probably four games that year where we had to come from behind in the last minutes to win games and the balls just seemed to bounce our way and we and the thing that I'm most proud about as this team is when we had to make plays everybody stepped up and made plays I remember we were fourth and ten on the 50 yard line against Wyoming if we don't get this first down game's over they take a knee and I remember fourth and ten you have to have some protection that offensive line blocked like you can't believe and I had all the protection in the world. I'm going to throw a little option out to Glenn Kozlowski. Cause, I guarantee that a concussion. He pulls up at about 11 yards right behind the linebacker. Waving to me like, I'm open. I'm like, no, you're not. So I'm waving to him to scoot over. And he scoots over. We complete the ball. We go down a score. We win the game. And so that that's what college football is all about and being at BYU and being with these, this team is when people had to step up, they stepped up and made plays. And that was, it was really awesome to be a part of that.
1: So when was the first time I'm going to wrap up here, but when was the first time you guys got back together like and actually celebrated as a team then?
3: We got back together. It was so awesome. We got back together. We came back, we came back to school in January one of the first things we did, we had dinner in Salt Lake City with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency, and then we had a big um, get together in the Marriott Center where people were all invited, packed the Marriott Center. Um, President uh, Monson, I think he was first counselor at the time, was there. I mean, you know, President Hinckley, President Hinckley it was okay. And then we then we had a big parade going down uh, University Avenue I kind of celebrated it all and um and then after that a couple of months later we got ready for spring ball and started all over again
1: <laughs> okay well hey great times nonetheless but uh, of course the 1984 BYU national championship team their championship team they're considered to be the last non-power team to win a national title is that a distinction that you uh, think is is good? Is it something that you would rather see change, have an opportunity for BYU or another non-traditional power to have an opportunity to win the national championship at some point
3: down the road? I've always felt that if you're playing college football, everybody should have an opportunity to win the championship. However however you want to figure this out, however people, people making these decisions, I don't think it should be held to five conferences where the winner is comes out of every year. If you're good, you're good. And and whether you have to figure out something to broaden the just like the one double A does it. If you have to figure out some way to do that, um the champions of, of whatever league you're in play like a little tournament or whatever. I I just think it's I think it's the way it should be. I think that's what America is built on, the underdog. And to keep the underdogs out of the picture, I don't think is right. So, But I don't really have a lot of say in that and stuff like that. So we'll see if anything like that ever does change down the
1: road. Well, Robbie, can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us here on the podcast. Great thoughts. One of the seasons that uh, obviously BYU fans who were alive during that era will never forget, and it won't soon be forgotten just by BYU fans across the world. But can't thank you enough for taking the time. Look forward to catching up with you down the road. Okay.
3: Okay, Jay. Thank you.
1: All right. There you go. Great conversation with Robbie Bosco. As you heard him say, he hopes that one day BYU will have an opportunity to win another national title. And I think most of us listening to this podcast hope that is an opportunity that the Cougars have at some point. But there are a big reason why the current format of how the big – boys in college football. Don't want one of the quote-unquote small fries as BYU wants or maybe still is to win another national title and they have the current system set up to essentially preclude that from ever happening again. But at some point you'd like to see that happen. And big thank you once again to Robbie Bosco. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that conversation. More of those coming up this week as you look back at 1984 with people like Norm Chow as well as BYU defensive captain Jim Herman among others on the podcast. So excited to have them on the podcast and come in the coming days throughout this week. All right, guys, I mentioned this is a super-sized edition of the podcast. As you probably have noticed, we're 40 minutes into this. Well, guess what? We're going to be pushing near an hour at the end of this, maybe 45 minutes, who knows. But a special edition of the Locked On uh, Network is going on this week, and that is the 2020 Locked On NFL Mock Draft Special. This involves every Locked On NFL podcast host, so all 32 of them, as well as the majority of the Locked On college hosts as well, myself included. You're probably wondering, is there a BYU player being selected? No, I was asked to help do some stuff with the University of Utah as we don't have a Utah host, and you'll hear my assessment of some certain Utah players in this, but wanted to give you a special taste of what you can expect with the 2020 Locked On NFL Mock Draft special, a special edition a segment, I guess I should say, of the podcast brought to you by Brian Peacock, as well as Matt Williamson from the Locked On NFL show. You'll also hear the voices of Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino from the Draft Dude. Uh, also, Trevor Sykema and Ben Solak of the Locked On NFL Draft Show. You'll all hear about that in this special edition of this podcast. So Without further ado, here is a special segment of the 2020 Locked On NFL Mock Draft Special.
4: They've been playing the game their entire life. From the playground...
5: Stacks and eight,
4: right? Don't forget 60 minutes a play a day, right? I'm
5: playing the NFL. Yes, sir. I'm drafting
4: number one. Maybe. To their high school. Let's hear it, gentlemen. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't
6: lose. Let's go play some football. Let's go. Play.
4: To the university.
0: We have 95 players here, so accomplished as athletes in high school, we gave them full scholarships to the best football program in the country.
4: Now, their lives are about to change forever. Become your mom's favorite player. Whoa. This is Locked On NFL. And this is the Locked On Podcast Network, Mock Draft. Welcome to the 2020 Locked On NFL Mock Draft Special. Brian Peacock here alongside former NFL scout Matt Williamson. We will take you through the first round plus in a network-wide mock draft. All 32 teams represented, even those without first-round picks. Hosts making picks for the teams they cover. Our friends from the college side of the network with profiles on each one of these prospects that get selected in The Locked On NFL Mock Draft Special, why they are considered worthy of first round selections and analysis from my co-host Matt Williamson, as well as draft dudes Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino and the Locked On NFL Draft Crew, Trevor Sykema and Ben Solak. If you're listening to this kickoff episode on a team-specific podcast, you can follow along all week, every pick, throughout round one on the Locked On NFL channel. Teams are talking trades, so you may not know exactly where your team ends up selecting. We'll conclude this draft next Friday, checking in with those teams in round two who didn't select in the opening stanza, some of which might jump into round one before it's all finished. And recapping everything that went down all week long. Matt, I'm pumped. Are you ready to do this thing?
0: i'm very ready to do this thing this is a very cool event i think people will enjoy it we've had so many new subscribers since last year that didn't get to enjoy it so you're in for a treat you're in for a wild ride and a really well put together whole situation here starting right now
4: absolutely yeah and it was one of the most popular it was the most popular show on the nfl side of the network last year and i expected to be even bigger and better and the way things are right now in the world And wherever you are listening to this podcast, I hope you are well. And I hope this is something fun for you to listen to all week long. Matt, as the Cincinnati Bengals go on the clock with the opening selection in the locked on NFL mock draft, you've been through this. What are teams doing in preparation, the final days and minutes leading up to the first pick for those specific teams?
0: Well, this year, who the heck knows? I mean, (laughs) I'm sure that there's things like, you know, the the electronics or the the IT people are coming to everyone's homes to make sure everything works, checking, double checking, doing all that kind of stuff. We mentioned before, you know, maybe you could run mock drafts in terms of let's try to just do a a whole walkthrough, basically, of how this thing's going to work. If we're going to make a trade, who's in charge of calling this team, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, in, old, in the olden days, and the not 2020 draft, most of the hay is in the barn, really, a day or two before the draft. I mean, you might be calling agents of your favorite people to make sure that prospects didn't fall down the stairs or that knee that you're worried about isn't <laughs> flaring up. But for the most part, things should be done a couple days before the draft.
4: Let's check in with some of our analysts here on the network. We have a pair of NFL draft shows, Draft Dudes, Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino.
7: It's Joe Marino and Kyle Krabs of the Draft Dudes podcast. And let me just tell you as a couple of Draft Dudes, we are really excited for this Locked On Podcast Network draft simulation, where each host is going to make the picks for their team and, Uh, I know it's not the real thing, but it's pretty damn close. And this draft promises to be very exciting with all the dynamics between the teams with multiple first round picks and all the quarterbacks. So, Kyle, uh, I'm sure you're just as excited as I am.
8: Yeah, the big mystery here is from the quarterback perspective, how many can we get to go early? And then the other fascinating subplot is when does the offensive tackle run start and how fast does it go? Because there's generally considered to be four top offensive tackles. There's generally considered to be three top quarterbacks. Maybe a fourth with Jordan Love if he sneaks in there remains to be seen. And the order of all seven of those players who are feasibly top 12 talents coming off the board is going to be a really interesting scenario to see how it actually plays out here.
7: I think just as interesting as the offensive tackle discussion is the wide receiver. Everybody knows this is a really deep and talented crop of receivers, but there's really exciting guys at the top of the board. You know, could we see six, seven, eight guys go off the board in the first round? When does that run start? And uh, who are those late first round guys that uh, teams that, you know, like the Packers or or like the Saints and Eagles and, and Vikings? Who do they get if they are a uh, left kind of picking the later half of those top tier pro- prospects? So uh, offensive tackles, quarterbacks, wide receivers, the NFL is a passing league. And you can tell that this um, this draft is going to really help these offenses be
8: more dynamic. Yeah, it's a deep class and we're going to have a lot of opportunities to see players that in a typical class are probably off the board by 20. They might be lingering here in the late first round, early second round. So lots to look forward to, lots to get into. Looking forward to see how these teams start their drafts.
5: Hey everybody, Trevor Sycamore and Benjamin Solak from the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast here with you. Excited to go on this journey of the Locked On NFL Mock Draft Special. Ben, this is going to be a lot of fun. There's so many things that could happen in this mock draft. What are you looking forward to most?
9: Yeah, it's always nice when you're able to get thirty-two guys, each of whom knows their team as well as the host and the locked on podcast network do, and they can control for their pick. And then you have the freedom for things like trade negotiations as the pick comes off the board. You have the ability for surprises as each individual analyst focuses on their guys. I think number one, we're not it's not gonna be a typical mock. It's not gonna be like what we no, see definitely when not. only one person controls all thirty-two teams, there's gonna be a lot more aggressive moves, so I expect to see big trade-ups i expect to see surprising picks and that's that's the reality with these when you're controlling just that one team you go and get your guy that's what we see in the league i guess that's what we'll be seeing in this mock as well
5: i'm really interested to see how the offensive tackles go here in the first round because it's just the possibilities are endless we saw that in our guest mock draft series that we're doing on our podcast but i mean what other positions are, are big ones quarterback wide receiver probably right
9: well, I think, yeah, I think that when you're making these sorts of picks and it's, it's catered to your audience for your podcast, you're tempted sometimes to go for those sexier positions. And the sexy position in this draft is undoubtedly wide receiver. So to me, I'm really interested to see. We know the big three will come off the board and Jerry Judy, CeeDee Lamb, and Henry Ruggs who's wide receiver four, who's wide receiver five, and just how many can we fit in this first round?
5: Ooh, It's going to be a lot of fun. Ben and I are going to be back with you recapping a lot of these picks throughout the mock draft. I'm very excited, so let's get it started.
4: Okay, Matt, we're here. The Cincinnati Bengals are on the clock. Is there any doubt what... The Bengals should do here. They earned the right through their poor play in the 2019 season to be drafting number one overall on everybody's list. It seems to be the same name, the same prospect that should go first overall. If their phone is ringing, should they even be answering it? Or do they know who the pick will be with the first overall selection in this draft?
0: I mean, you answer it. And if someone offers you a godfather-like offer, you consider it. And you still might not even say yes. I mean, I think Burrow is the super prospect. He would go first in almost every draft, you know, nine out of ten years. That's a gift, and the Bengals need it. He's an Ohio guy. They need to sell tickets. They need to sell jerseys. The offense that he falls into isn't in that bad a shape as first overall selections go. So I think it's kind of too good to be true.
4: All right, with that, this draft is underway. Let's go to the hosts of Locked on Bengals and get the pick for Cincinnati. Joe Goodberry and Jake Lisko.
10: The first overall pick in the 2020 NFL Draft, the Cincinnati Bengals easily and without second thought select Joe Burrow. In fact, Joe, we received no calls in the war room for the number one pick. I guess everyone just knows not to ask.
11: And I don't think we would have considered any offers anyway. So we make this pick. This pick has really been made since maybe late December when the Bengals lost to the Miami Dolphins in week 16 of the regular season and clinched their first overall pick. Joe Burrow went on a tear in the playoffs after that. And the Bengals will finally get a franchise quarterback First time they have drafted number one since 2003 when they drafted Carson Palmer out of USC. They're in that position again. The roster has been turned over on the defensive side through free agency. And I think they're looking at this squarely of saying our Super Bowl window opens again if we draft Joe Burrow number one in 2020.
10: That's right. The Bengals don't just spend money to spend money. This is a strategic injection of funds into the defense to make themselves competitive while they have Joe Burrow on his rookie deal for five years. He's of course expected to come in and be a day one starter in Cincinnati. Andy Dalton is still on the roster, but will not be on the roster by the time training camp comes around. He might not even be on the roster by the time the draft is finished. We are looking openly to trade Andy Dalton for whatever assets we can recover. And if that doesn't work out, he'll be cut before Joe Burrow shows up for rookie camp or for the first offseason activity that we're allowed to hold with these rookies this summer. Joe, how much better does Joe Burrow make this team?
11: Well, the quarterback is the most important position. And I think we're looking at a guy coming off a historic college football season that many have said is the best passing performance throughout a whole season in the history of college football what does he do better than Andy Dalton Andy Dalton has been the Mendoza line for starting quarterbacks in the league for a long time and I feel like all of the skills you look for typically when you look at college quarterbacks usually they are the big guys with the strong arms going near the top and you say can they function in the pocket do they have accuracy? How's their IQ? How's their processing? Uh, how do they do off script? All the questions you normally go into tape asking with Joe Burrow, those are all the answers you have with him based on tape and based on what he showed this past year. All of those things are not in question. He has them in spades. It's the arm strength, right? That's the only area you really question. And I would say it's very similar to Andy Dalton. So it should be an upgrade in almost every area of quarterbacking other than that and that's okay because when you look at the best quarterbacks in the league over the last 20-25 years, whether it's Tom Brady or Peyton Manning or Drew Brees, they all had those other features in their game without having a cannon for an arm.
6: Simply put, Joe Burrow is the most influential recruit in LSU football history. In leading the Tigers to the 2019 National Championship, Burrow was fantastic. Shattering school records and setting national marks that may not be touched. 5,671 yards and 60 touchdown passes for Burrow while completing 76% of his passes. His arm strength won't wow you, but Joe Burrow makes up for it everywhere else. His decision-making is elite. Just six interceptions on the 2019 season. He's the son of a coach and a film room junkie. There's a story about LSU beating Alabama, getting back to Tus- from Tuscaloosa to Baton Rouge. And when Joe Brady, the passing game coordinator, got to LSU football ops that night to go get the cut-ups of the film, Burrow had already beaten him there. Burrow has very underrated athleticism. Not only was he a high school quarterback, he was also a high school basketball player, and his ability to move the chains with his feet is something that many have overlooked throughout this process. Burrow is a fierce competitor whose teammates love him, who rises in the biggest moments. Should Joe Burrow stay healthy, he will have a long prosperous NFL career as a franchise quarterback. This is Matt Moscona of Locked on LSU, your source for LSU and SEC content every day
4: all right matt there's the pick joe burrow goes number one overall to the cincinnati Bengals, and there's a lot to like about joe burrow i think maybe if you're nitpicking you can find some knocks here and there about arm strength which in some cases is completely overrated and uh, I, i like what was said by many smart nfl people in the past that the quarterback position isn't so much played with your arm. Once you get to the NFL level, it's played from the neck up. And I think that's where Joe Burrow really shines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And he is a good athlete. He has a remarkable head and poise and confidence for the game processing accuracy, He does not have a power arm. And that worries me a little bit, considering the area of the country he's going to when it's sleeting and windy and, you know, in the NFC North and late in the year. We'll see how he deals with that. But that by no means would slow me down from making such a pick. He's a tremendous prospect.
4: More locked on NFL draft special coming up. The Washington Redskins are now on the clock with the second selection.
1: There you have it. Uh, Locked on NFL channel. Can't thank them enough for giving us that special segment. More of that throughout this week as they take you through all 32 picks of the first round with this 2020 NFL Mock Draft special. You can follow them on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and similar to what you're doing with this podcast. Wherever you're listening to your podcast, check out the Locked on NFL channel and make sure to listen to this 2020 Mock Draft special. You'll hear my voice among many others throughout this week as they take you all through all 32 picks as well as a few more as they talk about the upcoming NFL draft. Massive undertaking to do this and I would encourage you guys to follow it and give it some support this week. Look, that'll do it for this special supersized edition of Locked on Cougars. Usually we aim for what? Uh, 20-ish minutes? 25-30 uh, minutes at the most? But I wanted to give you guys some big conversations this week so the podcast might be a little bit longer in length this week but can't thank you guys enough for for your continued support of the show. Follow the show on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Locked On Cougars. Follow my personal Twitter feed at Jacob C Hatch. And if you want to drop the show a note anytime via email, please do so. Locked on BYU at gmail.com is your address for that. Enjoy whatever's left of your Monday, and we'll be back here to more with you tomorrow. This has been the Locked On Cougars Podcast for April 13th, 2020. We will see you tomorrow.